Well, let's turn our Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 27. I'm going to read the section starting in verse 11 and then all the way through verse 44 so we can consider a theme throughout this section regarding Jesus and apply that to our lives. One of the things you're going to see is that Jesus and the crowds are going to be asked questions from Pilate. And what I was thinking about regarding these questions and then the answers both from Jesus and the crowds is that in our day-to-day, there are lots of questions and controversies regarding both religion and politics or the church and state. And that a lot of times these questions, you can kind of know where things are going to go, not only by what the question is and how it's being asked, but then how someone responds. And there's many, I think, insightful things we can learn about our own day by considering the lessons of this day in Matthew 27. Take, for example, you know, someone might be wondering regarding the political climate of this last year and season and maybe for quite a long time, you know, if Jesus were alive today, do you think he would vote Democrat or Republican? If Jesus You know, that would be a question politically, the kind of state issues. But how about in the church? Sometimes people pose the question, do you think Jesus is more our Savior or is he our Lord? And as you might suspect, both the answers to those questions can be telling, but even the questions themselves are saying something and Getting the question right is just as important as getting the answer right. So I want to just introduce it in that way to help you start thinking about the kind of combination that's going to happen here between church and state, religion and politics. And if any of you are starting to kind of get nervous, like we're going to talk a lot about partisan American politics, well, just hold on for a minute. I think that you'll see if you've been around God's word enough, or even specifically Embassy Church, that there is an entirely different thing going on than what most of our assumptions and questions and even answers are to these basic ideas. Let's just first read the text. Matthew 27, verses 11 to 44. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they then, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? 
For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather Then a riot was beginning. He took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters And they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and they put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and they took the reed, and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, They stripped him of the robe and they put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. They then sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him... For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. I wanted to read all of that section, not because we're going to cover every detail in it, but because throughout that longer section of the narrative regarding Jesus in front of Pilate, Pilate in front of the crowds, Jesus being mocked and then crucified, there is, I think, a pretty obvious theme about Jesus. So in a short one-sentence summary, 
The things I want you to consider today, Jesus is a different kind of king, and he is a different kind of savior. That's one short takeaway, summarizing at least what we want to focus on today in this section of Matthew 27. Jesus is a different kind of king. He is a different kind of savior. Let's just take those each one at a time. They both kind of flow out of the the question from Pilate, as I said. The first question is the question from Pilate to Jesus. Jesus is asked by Pilate, if you look down in verse 11, are you the king of the Jews? And this is the first time that we see Jesus in front of the state, the government, the political entities of his day. So, What's Jesus' view of politics? What's his view of state? And he's asked a political question. Are you a king? And then notice just the theme that runs through this. Seven times or so you see the phrase, the governor, and that's not even including the number of times that Pilate, who the governor is being referred to, is in the text. But in addition to that, we see in verses 27 to 31, notice that the way They put a scarlet robe on him. They put a crown of thorns on him. They put a reed in his right hand. They kneel before him and they mock him, bowing down, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then in verse 37, over his head, they put this charge against him because every single time you're going to crucify someone in the Roman courts, You have what they're guilty of above their heads, and in this case, you've got the guilty charge of this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And then finally, they're mocking him in verse 41 and 42, and they say, he's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, then we'll believe in him. Jesus is a king. He's being mocked as a king. He's being asked, are you the king? And his answer to all of that is very telling, but overall we need to realize this thread means that Matthew is telling us that this is the coronation ceremony of this king. It's a different kind of coronation ceremony, a different kind of crown, isn't it? Different kind of royal robe and a rod in his hand that they're going to use to beat him with kind of playing off of that idea that he's got this scepter that he's ruling. Different kind of king, different kind of crown. And when Jesus is asked directly, he doesn't deny it. Look at his answer again in verse 11. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But what does that even mean? What kind of answer is that? And that's what I was getting at in my introduction. Sometimes the question is just as important as the answer. And in this case, I think Jesus is telling us, well, it kind of depends on what you mean by king of the Jews. And yes and no. In other words, Jesus could have been more clear. He seems a bit ambiguous. Those are your words, not mine. Why doesn't he just say, no, I am not a king. I'm not a political ruler. I'm a spiritual leader. If it was Buddha, that's probably what Buddha would have said. No, I care about enlightened spirituality. I'm not into politics. That's not Jesus' answer. 
But the other hand, he is not saying, yes, I'm the king of the Jews, like clear and forthright. It's strange. It's ambiguous. It's almost like he's trying to say yes and no, sort of, kind of depends on what you mean by your question. And how many questions are we dealing with in today's controversies and chatter where it's like, well, let's define our terms. What do you mean by that? So instead of saying yes, like if you were to ask, let's say, Muhammad, another spiritual leader, are you a political leader? He'd be like, absolutely, yes. The state of Islam is a state. We are overtly political. So whether it is a clear yes from some leaders or a clear no from other leaders, Jesus is like a yes, no, maybe so. I think another way to say it is, those are your categories, not mine. And for further support, we could hear these words from John's gospel. With the same interaction, different accounting, a few more details in John chapter 18, Pilate goes back inside his palace, summons Jesus and says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, is that your idea or did some others talk to you about me? And then John's gospel continues and Pilate says, am I a Jew? Your own people and chief priests handed you over. What have you done? And then Jesus says these very clarifying words. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Pilate then says, well, then you are a king. And Jesus says, that's what you said. I'm a king. Those are your words, not mine. I think the best summary when you put all of this data together is, those are your categories. These are your concepts. Based on your definitions, probably not. But technically, yes, I am the king of the Jews. But I have a kingdom that is not earthly. My kingdom is from another world, a heavenly world. It is of a heavenly kingdom. So let's go back to our introductory question. If Jesus was around today on the earth and he was asked, hey, Jesus, you're going to vote Republican or Democrat? I think he'd be saying, those are your categories, not mine. Earthly categories. I have a different kind of kingdom that I care about. And I think he makes that quite clear in John chapter 19. Jesus is a different kind of king, therefore he has a different kind of kingdom with an idea of different kinds of citizens and all of this being empowered with a different kind of power, which really is the differentiation between Jesus' heavenly kingdom, its citizens that are tapping into the power of the heavenly realm and then the earthly kingdoms. To illustrate this point, I want to do just like a brief, you know, maybe not so brief. We'll see how long this takes. But an illustration from Rodney Stark. If you don't know Rodney Stark, I don't believe he's like evangelical Christian, but he is a sociologist and historian. And in 1997, he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And he wanted to, in that book, unpack the reasons for the undeniable historical reality that Jesus Christ his death and resurrection went from a small, tiny, little cult following of less than a thousand people in 40 AD, early first century, 
to then five million people, which was about 10% of the Roman Empire just a couple hundred years later. How in the world did that happen? What kind of revolution was the Christian revolution to create such a massive upheaval in the dominant power of the world? That's Stark's aim in his book, The Rise of Christianity. His purpose is, again, sociological and historical. It is not spiritual. He's trying to look at the historical and social reasons for the growth of the Christian faith. And so there are many helpful little tidbits in there. And the one that I want to specifically point to your attention is pretty relevant to people living in 2021. There's a whole chapter in there, and this is the title of the chapter. Epidemics, Networks, and Conversion. In that chapter, he talks about the various plagues and epidemics that would sweep through the Roman Empire. For example, in 165 AD and in 251 AD, there were two giant plagues, pandemics, devastating cities and networks. Death rates were from 7% to sometimes up to 50% based on certain historian estimates. These plagues were devastating. I don't even think we can compare it to the current situation we're dealing with with COVID-19. It was killing a significant percentage of the community. Communities would be shattered. Individuals were having the hardest time just making sense of the world. And so Christian preachers during these pandemics, epidemics like Cyprian or Dionysus, their message was to help people make sense of death and loss by telling them of the power of the resurrection. They urged Christians to show love and charity no matter what it may cost them, even their lives. The Christian community then rallied together in light of these messages and sermons. They cared for people in the face of death and disease while the non-Christian Roman pagan families fled for safety social distance really, really far away from any contagious disease. It was not because they didn't know about the spread of disease. They knew well about contagion and they ran for the hills. One of the most famous physicians in Rome at this time, Stark explains, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, he had no way to deal with all of the sick. And so he fled to the cities. He rode out the disaster and lived in the country in his wealthy home comfortably. In contrast to the wealthy Roman aristocratic physicians, there's an account which records what would happen then to the sick and the dying that were left behind. And here's the quote. These people died with no one to look after them, Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants in that house would perish without any attention, end quote. Christians did not act the same way, though. They crossed two giant boundaries. They cared for the diseases, the diseased within their own families, and they cared for the sick and the dying and even enemies in their community. Here's another quote from an early church leader that was following right after Easter. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty. 
They did not spare themselves or think only of each other. They were heedless of danger. They took charge of the sick. They attended to every need. They ministered to them in the name of Jesus Christ. And with them, many of them departed from this life, but serenely happy, for they were infected by others with a disease, but they were drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting these pains. Many in nursing and caring for others transferred their death to themselves and died in their place. I wonder where you get an idea like that. People willing to lay down their life and die in the place of someone else. This was such an upheaval politically, socioeconomically, these kind of mass conversions that Roman Emperor Julian later wrote, the Christian growth is crazy. And what is causing this is their moral character. And by their benevolence towards strangers and the care of those that are going to their graves. Julian writes one more line. These Christians not only support their own poor, but they're supporting our poor as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. All of these observations caused Emperor Julian to then try and match the efforts by Christians by starting his own campaign to help create pagan charities to help with those who are dying and distraught during these days. But for all that they tried to do, they could never match the commitment of the Christian practices And in large part, Stark writes, because there was no doctrinal basis or traditional practice for them to build on like the Christians. So there's a lot that you need to process regarding how then you might apply this to your day to day. But what I'm trying to hopefully clarify is that when you have a king of a heavenly kingdom that has defeated death, You become citizens of that kingdom with a different kind of political power that the world has never known or seen. And it is a powerful force in this world for good, precisely when we follow the example of Jesus himself. We don't fit into the world's categories. This is not about are you mask wearer or not mask wearer. This is just an observation That the gospel does something weird and different that's not about right or left or Republican or Democrat. To put it another way, the same book Rodney Stark writes in, to just summarize another kind of point. One of the reasons Christian religion grew so much, he explains in another chapter, was because of the women that were flocking to the Christian faith. Now, why would women be so interested in Christianity? The first reason was because that men would often kill women, little infant babies, if they were girls. Because it was like, well, women don't have any, you know, status in society, and so let's just be done with them. Infanticide. Not in the womb, outside of the womb. And the Christians were the ones that were pro-life and said, none of that. Additionally, men could have as many different wives or mistresses, but the women had... A different standard. 
It was normal in that society that the women would have to be pure or virgin and that if they weren't, then they were unclean and they weren't worth anything. But men could do whatever they wanted. And the Christians were like, no, we have none of this. And a lot of people would be like, that sounds like conservative social values, pro-life and pro-marriage and whatever else. But then you've got to count all that I just said about caring for the poor, the oppressed, the, the health care that they would give to the lower class in society. Was it Democrat? Was it Republican? Was it conservative? Was it liberal? Should we care more about social health care or should we care more about babies and infants? That's the point. Jesus is saying, those are your categories, not mine. My kingdom is of a different kind of kingdom, and I would strongly urge each one of us to really wrestle with the kingdom of God and its implications for the way that we would live faithfully as Christians in this world. Did you notice what John read for us, John Pei, when he came up in 1 Peter chapter 2? He said that you should live such honorable lives amongst the pagans that they will see your good deeds, they will give honor to God, and then they will persecute you. Well, which one is it? Is the world going to persecute us, or are they going to give praise to God for our good deeds? Exactly. Yes and no. We will both make sense with the world at times, and then we will be like weird, strange foreigners from another land with a different king, a different heart, a different system of working and thinking. And if you sound like everybody else in the rest of the political jargon and the debates and discussions that are going on, then it could be that maybe you have the wrong king. Jesus is a different kind of king. And this passage of scripture is telling us that from beginning to end. The whole gospel of Matthew is telling that from beginning to end. Do you know the last time we heard the phrase king of the Jews? It was, was when Jesus was born. He's the king of the Jews. Where's the king of the Jews? And what does the political parties of that day do? Herod goes and kills a bunch of infants trying to hopefully get rid of Jesus. Go back and read Matthew chapter 2. It's almost like bookends. Here's what the world wants to do, and whatever, every time Jesus kind of gets in the way of political endeavors from the leaders of his day, you can tell he's just a different kind of king. So, how are you going to apply this to your life? Well, obviously, what kind of king are you giving your allegiance to? What kind of political party? Do you think you can really toe the line with all of the world's systems? Might it be that if we're really faithful Christians, that we don't just line with some partisan side one way or the other, but that in many ways, Christians shouldn't make any kind of worldly system happy? What does it mean for you to believe the gospel? How about just think about that? The word gospel is an announcement of a new reign of a new king. That's the historical meaning of the word gospel. You've probably heard it, gospel means good news, but what kind of good news? It's not just any kind of good news. The good news of the announcement of a new king who's reigning. And typically, that was for the king, who would have been the Roman emperor. Hear ye, hear ye, the town crier stands up on a large box, declares and announces as a herald, there is a new king, a new emperor, Caesar Augustus, the Savior, literally they would use that language, the Savior, the Son of God, give your allegiance to him. It's, it's stamped on all their coins. And so the Christians, the early Christians decided, we're going to take that word and we're going to give it a whole new kind of meaning. 
There's a gospel, a yuan gelion of good news announcing a new kind of king. Is your gospel political in the way that Jesus means it to be? Or is it just strictly internal spiritual? We call ourselves Embassy Church for a reason. An embassy is a political entity that says, our home is not here. Our kingdom is somewhere else. We're on foreign land, and we are citizens of another kingdom. We are ambassadors of the true king, Jesus Christ. Therefore, membership in embassy is not to be anti-political, but to be truly political. Political with the ways of the kingdom of God. One of the more fascinating things I noticed in this passage is that he's not just a different kind of king, he's got a different kind of kingdom. And at this point, I started comparing and contrasting. I encourage you to do this. We don't have time to do it today. But read through the Sermon on the Mount, the ethics of the kingdom, then read Matthew 27. Jesus is living out the ethics of the kingdom by the way he loves his enemies, by the way he turns the other cheek, by the way he prays for those who are persecuting him. Amazing. A different king different kingdom ethics. Therefore, I'm asking you to be that kind of political person, meaning obey the Bible, follow Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. That's our constitution. That is our marching orders. And if we're going to be faithful, we should be ambassadors to our great king and live such strange lives that people will not be able to make sense of us, but then in other ways really love us, and then in other ways really hate us. So as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavens. And then everything else he says in chapter 3 of Colossians is flowing out of, because we have our eyes fixed on him, we then can live in this world. In other words, You will do the most earthly good, the most political good, by being heavenly-minded. Heavenly-minded with your eyes on the true king will make you the most earthly, fruitfully productive. It is unlike the typical saying, if you're too heavenly-minded, then you will bring no earthly good. It is the exact opposite. It is when you are too consumed with the idolatry of power in the political conversations of this day that you will get lost and fail to see the true king. That's our first point. Jesus is a different kind of king. Secondly, Jesus is a different kind of savior. The name Jesus, literally the name Jesus, It means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. If you want a good little teaching on this, John Pei, who again came up and read our scripture reading, go back and listen to his Christmas Eve devotional teaching on his name will be Jesus from Matthew 1.21. A recent helpful, excellent exposition that his name will be Jesus and he will save us from our sins. His name means Savior. He is the God who saves. But one little fact that sometimes is disputed as to whether or not the text that is read here should also include the one name Jesus for Barabbas. 
We find it in other Gospels. It's not here in Matthew. There's even manuscript discussions. Here's the point. There's two Jesuses in this story. And so I want you to go look back down at verse 21, and I want you to see this question from Pilate, the governor, when he says to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? That's the question. Who do you want? Which Jesus do you want? Jesus was a common name. So if any of you are like new to the Bible and Christianity, you'd be like, wait, I thought there was just one Jesus. No, this was a common Jewish name. It's, it's based out of the root name of Joshua. And again, it just means Yahweh, the God of the Israel people. He saves. And so it was really kind of common. That's why a lot of times you'll see Jesus of Nazareth to differentiate him from some other Jesus. And in this case, there's Jesus Barabbas. And then we've got Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. So here's the question. Which of the two do you want? Which Jesus? Or as I want to say it, which kind of savior do you want? Because there's no doubt about it. Both of them are representing two kinds of saviors. Both of them have a power and a way about doing life that is completely opposite of one another. We see that Barabbas is described earlier in the text. So look with your eyes back up to verse 16. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they'd gathered, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas, Jesus, or Jesus who's called the Christ? The notorious criminal, well-known, famous, for what? Insurrection. Insurrection meaning trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. A robber, a lastes. That's the word for somebody that tries to defy Rome with force. A murderer at some point, the gospel writers say. A murdering, oppressor, overthrowing rule and government with power. That's your one choice. But then there's another choice. Jesus. The one who doesn't answer when wrongly accused. The one who says nothing. The one who gets beaten and mocked and scorned. Which Jesus do you want? That's what I think Matthew 27 is saying to us today. Which kind of savior do you want? Look down at verse 38. This theme continues. When they're crucifying Jesus, then two robbers, or again, lastai, the plural form of insurrectionists, the same as kind of Barabbas, were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Three crosses, one of them should have been for Barabbas, because there's three guys that had defied Rome with force and power and violence, and they were going to all be killed together, and there, right in the middle, is Jesus, the innocent one, who goes to the cross in mostly silence. These are two kinds of saviors. So you need to really ask, which kind of savior do you want? Which kind of savior are you tempted to believe you need for your little problems and big problems? How many times are you in a fight verbally or maybe even physically? And your response is to be more like Barabbas than like Jesus. To be quick 
to speak, to be quick to get angry, to be quick to use violence, to be quick to harm. There's quite a contrast representing these two Jesuses and these saviors. One of them can be stopped and the other one unleashes a kind of power that saves us that can't be stopped. This is what's summarized by uh, an address that was given in the 70s at the Urbana Conference. One of the preachers at this conference was using this illustration, and he says, Barabbas was the guy that's going to destroy the system. Barabbas was the guy that was trying to take down the empire. Barabbas is the guy that's willing to do anything, even kill people. Why would they want Barabbas? And this preacher says, it's very simple. If you let Barabbas go, then he will probably start another disturbance, another riot. And when that happens, all you got to do is just call the Roman soldiers, the National Guard, the federal troops, the Marines, whatever, and you can shut this guy down. All you have to do is put a few tanks in his neighborhood and voila, you got him. You can always stop a savior named Barabbas. But how do you stop Jesus, he asks. How do you stop a man with no guns, no tanks, no ammunition, but shakes the entire Roman Empire? How do you stop a man who doesn't fire a shot, but yet he gets revolutionary results? In our text, it seems as if the answer is, well, we just got to get rid of him. Let's push him off. Let's kill him. But they made the mistake that by doing that very deed, it launched his revolution. It launched the unstoppable power of the gospel. They could not get rid of Jesus or his kingdom or his rule. Barabbas is a kind of savior that you can easily stop, a kind of revolutionary that you could easily put to an end. But Jesus, he's one that they had no idea what kind of savior they were dealing with and that's the issue that i think each of us have today what kind of savior are you going to demand in the little moments of your everyday life to the big moments of your whole life will you submit yourself not just to a savior who takes away your sins but a savior that becomes your king and lord and saves you through putting his spirit within you and giving you a new life and a new heart there was great opposition to Jesus, but they wanted ultimately Barabbas. They wanted the murderer. So I think all of us need to be thinking and asking, which kind of savior, which kind of revolution, which kind of king do I want to give my allegiance to, put my hope in, and live my whole life around? It's really the kind of the point of today's message for each of us either for the first time, for the hundredth time, reaffirm our belief and trust that Jesus is a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom, with different citizens, from a different power who's going to save in a very radically different way. Is he yours? Who will you choose? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come now in Jesus' name and we pray for the un- 
unleashed power of your Holy Spirit to be poured out afresh on us. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, pour out your love in our hearts through the work of your Spirit, that we may know your great love for the world, your great love for us, your great power to save, your conquering over all political forces, the reason that you're the King of kings and Lord of lords and you don't fit in any earthly categories. I pray, Father, that each of us today will have a similar response that Pilate had, amazement. Would your spirit stir up in our hearts the awe and the wonder of what we have just read and heard regarding this kind of king, this kind of savior. And I pray that you would give us a boldness, a confidence, a commitment to your power over resurrection, that we would be willing, even if it costs our lives at times, to serve others, to love the sick, to do the things that everybody else would think, you're crazy. And I pray that you'd give us wisdom in these matters, especially during this season of our church's life and the issues that we're wrestling through. I pray, God, that we would be otherworldly in the way that we think and the way we act with new hearts because of the new king that we obey and the new savior that has risen from the grave and rules at your right hand, Father. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.